0: Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners, with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org.
1: Welcome to the 2022 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. Proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode 278, we visit with Heather Newton, author of McMullen's Circle, a collection of connected short stories and finalists for the W.S. Porter Prize. In 1969, as Carl Walinda prepares to tightrope walk across the gorge in the tiny town of Tenola Falls, Georgia, faculty families at the McMullen Boarding School learn about racism, war, and what makes a hero wiley cash new york times bestselling author of a land more kind than home had this to say about the book these deeply literary heartfelt and heartbreaking characters call to mind the work of elizabeth strout gail godwin and richard russo but heather newton is her own writer her characters are shot through with longing and hope and in this small community watches big dreams and big desires are dreamed and felt run toward and away from this is the kind of book that readers return to to reimmerse themselves in newton's world It's also the kind of book that writers return to, to see how she pulled it off. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence, and I really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, landiswade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. Speaking of writing, shameless plug here by the other sponsor of this podcast, which happens to be me. Uh, I have a novel coming out uh, in the spring of 2022. It's called Deadly Declarations. You can find out more about that at LandisWay.com. There's pre-order information there uh, for e-book and print book as well. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. We've also got a community blog there. Uh, If you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, we have a podcast newsletter called The Book Report. You can sign up at uh, charlottereaderspodcast.com and stay up with what's going on with the podcast. And if you're interested in what I'm doing with my writing, you can go to landisway.com and sign up for my author newsletter where I share information about my writing and upcoming novel, Deadly Declarations. But hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. One final part to consider, if you like audiobooks, check out Libro.fm. And if you sign up to get audiobooks from them, use the promo code Charlotte Reader, and you might get uh, something extra. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks
0: so much, Landis. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah, and disclaimer here for our listeners, uh, because we have, listeners, another lawyer on the show. I mean, we only have so many. (laughs) Two lawyers, And and here's the difference, though, Heather, you are a practicing lawyer. I'm just a recovering lawyer, and uh, I I guess that leads into a question. You, You practice law, you write, you teach creative writing. How do you make all those worlds work in tandem?
0: uh I have a stock answer for that and that yeah. is um imperfectly
1: <laughs> <laughs> well then you then you are practicing law for sure because that's exactly how a lawyer would answer the question right
0: That's right yeah I'm not sure how it happens but um you know it helps that I now have an empty nest my my daughter is grown and flown so that opened up some time for me um, so yeah, usually I can juggle it pretty well and not like curl up in a ball and cry. So yeah, works out.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah And you're coming, you're coming to us from Asheville and, uh, interestingly, you write with a literary quality, your first novel under the mercy trees, Harper Collins, 2011 won the Thomas Wolfe Memorial Literary Award and was chosen by the Women's National Book Association as a great group read selection and named an okra pick by the Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance. Um, and I'm just curious, that's not typically what lawyers are known for is literary writing. And so uh, where did that come from, Heather?
0: Well, I think I I always say there's two types of people who go to law school. There's the people who want to be lawyers. And I (laughs) I suspect you were one of those. And uh, then there are people who uh, want to be writers, but they need a way to make a living. And they're (laughs) verbally gifted and not smart enough to go to medical school. So, um that was me so i I was writing before law school and um got back to it as soon as I could after law school so um I've never wanted to write about lawyers or write about the law I've always just had the writer side of me instead so
1: yeah well that's interesting yeah i d- I didn't actually discover the fact that I was a writer a a, r- a real writer until <laughs> about thirty five years into my law career when I decided it was time to make a change. Um, But it's fun, right? I mean, we get to do, uh, there are a lot of lawyers that become writers, and I I, I ask lawyers what their take on that is, so I'll just ask you, what do you think it is about going to law school and practicing law that uh, actually allows lawyers to become authors?
0: Well, I think we get kind of a, a glimpse into so many different people's lives that we just amass these stories um and and also the practice of law involves a lot of storytelling you know every opening statement every closing argument is someone telling a story so uh there's a pretty close connection there so i'm Good not point. surprised yeah but i mean the thing, the people we meet and the, the the war stories that we are witness to you know it's not surprising that we get the urge to write them down
1: exactly All right. So, uh, Heather, we're here to talk about McMullen Circle, finalist for the W.S. Porter Prize. But your novel, The Puppeteer's Daughter, is forthcoming from Turner Publishing in July of 2022. And it's been optioned for television. And I'm just curious, how did all this come together in one year? This collection of short stories, this novel, this thing might be turned into television. What's going on?
0: Well, um, there were ten years there where I didn't publish a book. Um, <laughs> okay. I was trying, trying to place the story collection all that time, and also writing the puppeteer's novel. So, I heard some writer or read some writer on Twitter say that that they were uh, their writing was like a, a bus in Dublin. You wait forever for one to come, and then uh, two show up. So their their books are kind of like that, and I feel the same way. Um, but yeah, so the the short story got placed, and then we placed the novel, and Turner Publishing scheduled it really quickly. I didn't expect, uh, even if I sold it, for it to come out before 2023, but um, Turner put it on the the calendar for July of 2022, so I'm kind of trying to make sure that I, like, promote the story collection from, like, January to March, and then switch gears and start promoting the puppeteer's novel. It's a good problem to have,
1: yeah, you've actually got a lot going on this year. I mean, that's, uh, you know, not, <laughs> it's one thing to do a promoting, you know, one book at a time, but uh, to be thinking about promoting two, um, that, that, that's a challenge. And the television thing, how, where'd that come from?
0: Um, I'm really excited about it. Um, so, Turner Publishing has a, a an imprint called Keylight, mm-hmm. and their whole bent is to acquire books that can be adapted to film and television. Um so they were interested in the book and um they had a non-exclusive right to place it so both they and I could try to find um someone who would, you know, option it for screen and Turner uh placed it. So it's not been optioned great. and I've got my fingers crossed you know, um you know, not every option in fact most options don't result in something being made into a TV series but This is a great time for TV, Um, you know, so many streaming services. There's a big demand for content. So I'm going to enjoy fantasizing about it while I can. (laughs)
1: That's great. (laughs) Well, you you know, we've been talking about so much here, but before we jump into McMullen Circle, tell us briefly what what the novel's about.
0: Well, the Puppeteer's novel is about um, an aging puppeteer named Walter Gray, who has three adult daughters by three different women and announces to them at his 80th birthday that there's a fourth daughter. Uh, He has dementia, so they don't believe him at first, but then they find documents that uh, indicate that he's telling the truth, and they've got to go searching for the fourth daughter in order to claim their inheritance and their legacy. Uh, So uh, it's full of puppets, which is the fun part. Um, Mm -hmm. It was really fun to write.
1: (laughs) All right, well, that's good. Well, okay, we're going to jump into the book, but I also want to let listeners know you are co founder and program manager for the Flatiron Writers Room, uh, Writer Center in Nashville. Uh, Tell our listeners about that program and how they can uh, get connected with it.
0: Great. Um, Yeah, so the Flatiron Writers Room is a writer center that grew out of the Flatiron Writers group that I founded with several other writers back in 1992. Um, We were a writing group for years and still are, but and and while we were a writing group, before we formed the Writers' Center, we would, uh, we started bringing in people to teach classes for us that we were interested in. Um, and out of that, we decided to try to acquire some space. And Maggie Marshall and I um, formed the Flatiron Writers' Room, and that was, that's been five years now. Um so we in in pre-COVID times we were doing in-person classes and and co-working program and offering retreats and sponsoring readings. Uh, since COVID, most of our classes have been online, and but we are still running our co-working space. So we're sort of a smaller version of Charlotte Lit, um, mm-hmm. which you are so lucky to have here in char in Charlotte, um, and. Um, we managed to make the the big pivot like so many people have during COVID. So
1: yeah. still, well, still going at it. I enjoyed being able to to be involved in that teaching about audiobooks uh, last fall. That, that was, was fun. a
0: great class. Yeah. So useful. Yeah. Appreciate
1: that. All right. And listeners, just to tease us out a second, uh, when we're done here today, Heather and I are going to jump over to our Patreon channel. We're going to talk about community writing groups as an alternative to an MFA. And so if you ever thought about getting an MFA, we're going to talk about uh, what might be an alternative to that if you're not quite sure. So stick stick with us there. All right. Uh, Heather, let's talk about uh, the connectedness of of the stories in this book, McMullen Circle. Um, I, I really liked, you know, the book uh with that connected nature to it. And I enjoy that because I like to read novels. Um I enjoy short stories, but sometimes you'll read a short story and then suddenly boom, you're switching characters, you're switching mm-hmm. And it kind of it's an abrupt stop to where you were, were going when you're reading the book, but in this book there are a lot of things that uh, weave their way all the way through the book. And starting with the setting, so let's talk about the setting a second. It's a small town, North Georgia mountains, somewhat isolated. There's this place called the McMullen Boarding School. Let's talk about the setting, how it came to you, uh, what you like about it, what inspired you to write about this. All the, put all these characters in this place.
0: Sure. So. Um when I first started writing these stories, I didn't think I was writing a collection. Um, and the first story um, is called The Walk, and it's based on the um, the actual event of Carl Walinda going to Tallulah Falls, Georgia in 1970 or 71, I believe, and walking across Tallulah Gorge, which was this huge, huge event um, at the time. Um, my husband lived there at the time. His dad was a teacher at the uh, Tulula Falls School and they lived on campus. And so my my husband got to see Carl Walinda walk the gorge. And the the thing my husband remembers most is not the walk, it's the free hot dogs that they had, (laughs) uh, free frozen (laughs) hot dogs. So that was the first story I wrote. This is a really, it's a, it's a part of the country that my husband adores because he lived there until he was eight. And he, he has always wanted to get back there. Um, and because he loves it, I've grown to love it. We we now have a cabin down there. Um, in the collection, I changed the place names by like a letter or two, mainly just to signal to the reader that I didn't plan to stick to the facts. Um, but that is the part of the country that I have in mind. It's absolutely mm-hmm. gorgeous uh, with so many, you know, the Tejuga River is down there to Little Falls, um, the gorge. It's it, it's a beautiful part of the mountains um, and just really has a piece of my heart.
1: Yeah. And it's a little bit like you're going back in time when you're reading about this space here um, with these characters. And speaking of the characters, um, you have a number of different characters that, that run through these uh, collected stories. You start out with Sarah and Sarah's husband Richard. They have a daughter, Lorna. Lorna has a friend, Chase. Uh, then you have Evelyn and Margaret. There's Danny, who is the, you know, on on the crew that uh, went down in one of my favorite stories, uh, Tupelo Rose. But talk talk about a little bit about these characters. Do you have a favorite character, Heather, in, in this collection? I know, it's like, I know it's like asking if you, you have a favorite child, but uh, maybe this, we'll do it this way. Talk about some of your favorite characters. How about that?
0: Okay. Well, I'll tell you, Um, the second story I wrote was the story that's called McMullen Circle that features Lorna, who's a 10-year-old a girl, and then Chase, who's the little boy who's maybe eight or nine. And the whole uh, idea behind that story was, what if what if I had known my husband when we were kids? Um, because he's very much like Chase, you know, just fearless and full of curiosity. And Lorna is sort of a, she's a thinker. She spends a lot of time inside her own head. Um, so I guess those characters are, they, they're they my favorite if I have to pick a favorite, mm-hmm. um, just because they're so much like me. And I was able to incorporate so much from my own childhood in Raleigh Um, into some of those stories that feature the kids. Um, I'll say, though, that the collection is not just about two children. They're not the protagonist of the collection. It is, you know, it's a book for adults. Um, And actually, one of the choices that I made in deciding what order to put the stories in um, was not to put the McMullen Circle story in because the point of view is from the two children, and I didn't want to signal the readers that it was a book for kids. So um the mm-hmm. first story is is told from Sarah's point of view primarily.
1: Yeah, but these kids are uh, kind of entrepreneurial and engaging. They in McMullen Circle, I think they decided to do trick-or-treating in July, you know? Yeah. And, uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think so many, I was like that when I was a kid. This was like before video games and before internet. And I think there was a type of free range childhood that you could have back then where your mom would kick you out of the house in the morning and tell you not to come back until it mm-hmm. was mealtime. And you pretty much ran wild with all the other kids. I don't know about you, but we had you know dozens of kids in my neighborhood. There was always somebody to play with. Yeah. and uh, And I did, in fact, one time find a plastic pumpkin in a junk pile and uh, go trick-or-treating with my brother in the summer.
1: So, (laughs) What kind of success did you have?
0: We had great success because unlike my family, which never had candy in the house, other people have candy in their house all year long, Landis. Okay, well, that's
1: good to know. That's good to know. Well, one of the things you did in this story, too, is um, you had that childlike piece, but then you also weave in toward the end of that story, you know, a little signal that the parents of these two children, who are different parents because they're not in the same family, are having an affair. And that sort of sneaks its way in yeah. to the back of the book. So you're dealing with lots of different issues. You're dealing with the innocence of childhood, but you're also dealing with you know, infidelity. Um, you deal with domestic violence, aging, PTSD, civil rights, race relations, small town life. That's a lot to pack in. To one book. And and does that, was that intentional from the beginning or did you just kind of take the different stories as you, as you found them, as you were writing?
0: I did kind of take the stories as I found them. Um, Although I did by about the third story, I realized that I was making a collection. So I kept looking for opportunities to create an overall story arc. But the great thing about short stories is they, they are standalone and each one, what I'd love to do in a short story is to pull in unlikely elements that you wouldn't think of as going together and tie, you know, two or three of those together in every story. Um, and it does give you a lot more space, I think, than in a novel um, in a way, because you can uh, kind of let things occur to you and develop them in the space of a story and um you know, cover things in a more scattershot way than you could do in a novel, than you could get away with in a novel.
1: Yeah. And I think, uh, you do that in a number of these stories. I mean, the the one that you're going to read in just a minute, uh, Twilight song, you go back and forth in time and you, and, and you pull us in different directions. Uh, why don't you, if you don't mind, set that story up and, uh, read a scene from Twilight song.
0: Sure. Um, well, rather than spoil it, I guess I'll read it and then I'll I'll okay, set it up afterward if that's okay.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not a problem.
0: Yeah. Strong Louisiana sun warms nine-year-old Margaret's closed eyelids. A ceiling fan turns above her head and a man's voice calls her name gently from the next room. She lies still. She's playing hide-and-seek with Boudreaux, the prisoner who serves as her family's manservant and nanny. Her sickly mother objects to Boudreaux, but Margaret's father, the warden of Angola prison, trusts the prisoner above all men. Margaret loves Boudreaux. Where her parents are distant, he is kind. He plays with her, letting her choose the rules of the games pulling curly gray Spanish moss down from trees in the yard to make beards for them both, picking her up when she falls and dancing her across the long-covered porch, singing to comfort her. With her arms around his neck, she can feel the songs vibrate in his throat. The words are sometimes English, sometimes French, always just for her. She's found the perfect hiding place today, under the rumpled sheets of her own unmade bed. Her bedroom is just off the porch, and she hears Boudreaux go outside, his sandals whispering. He is hunting in the wrong direction. She giggles, keeping her eyes closed. His voice, still coaxing, grows fainter as he walks across the porch and down into the lower part of the yard, toward the sugarcane field that separates the warden's house from the low, whitewashed camp buildings of the prison. A breeze has blown all morning, and Margaret imagines it lifting Boudreaux's dark hair and then moving on into the field, parting the growing cane like some fast-moving underground animal. She can no longer hear Boudreaux, and her nose is beginning to itch. She opens her eyes, ready to throw off the sheet and run after him, ending the game, but she freezes. Someone is next to her in the bed. An arm lies on top of the sheet, nestled in the white folds of cloth to her right. It is an old woman's arm, dark patches flecking the back of the hand, clusters of tiny purple veins under the skin, a red crack chapped into the first knuckle. Margaret holds her breath, afraid to move, afraid to call Boudreau. The arm is still. She doesn't know if its owner is alive or dead. She wants to scream, but she can't make a sound. That's right, hon, open those eyes for me. A face looms over her, smiling, a white cap, bobby pin to salt-and-pepper hair. I'm Nanette, your nurse. I just need to get you turned. It's not good to lie in one position too long. The woman slips strong arms under Margaret and rolls her onto her side. The arm, the old woman's arm, flops across Margaret's body. She tries again to scream, but her voice won't work. The woman comes around to the other side of the bed and sees Margaret's terror. Oh, now don't you be anxious, hun. You've had a stroke. You're in the hospital, and we're taking good care of you.
1: Okay, so a little bit of uh, you know sleight of hand there. You know, from the beginning to 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 where we ended up in that uh, in that scene. Um, These two, this character, Margaret, um, and I believe it's her is. Well, I don't, Evelyn. Evelyn, yeah. yeah. They're connected to the McMullen's boarding school in some way, right?
0: Yeah, they are two elderly women. One is the librarian at the school and the other is the choral director. Um, and Margaret uh, has had a stroke and this is her memory of growing up on the grounds of Angola prison where her her father was the warden.
1: So uh, that idea, you know, starting off a story with someone who's had a stroke and then thinking back and then you take it even back further, you know, to when she was married and she was being abused and you establish that relationship between her, her and Evelyn. But in, in eventually in the end, the story is about the relationship between Margaret and Evelyn, right?
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. When I was a kid, um, I knew several women couples, elderly women couples, um, you know, in our neighborhood at church who presented themselves as roommates. But now with my adult eyes, looking back, I realized they were lesbian couples. And uh, women in the South, I think, could get away with that in a way that men could not, um, and and be accepted in a way that men were not. Um, so this was kind of a tribute to those couples that I remembered. Um, mm. And the the idea to give Margaret the background in Louisiana came from a, a childhood friend of mine who's an archaeologist in Louisiana who did a year-long dig on the grounds of Angola Prison, which used to be four plantations um, and her let me have her report, which was just fascinating. Um, so I incorporated some of the things I learned about uh, Angola Prison and its history into the story. It's always good to steal um, to borrow ideas from your friends. <laughs> 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 I don't. I don't borrow. I don't steal ideas from my writer friends, but I do steal them from my non-writer friends.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And then you you took us uh, to sort of the Skid Row where they're singing, and her husband making her sing. Margaret's a singer, mm-hmm. and and what comes out is that in this particular story is that Evelyn misses the sound of Margaret singing, and she can't sing because she's. Had a stroke, and then I won't I won't say how it ends, but it's a it's a touching story. Another touching story, which I mentioned earlier, which I really liked, uh, Tupelo Rose. I'm curious about where that came from because you deal with, um, you know, it's it's World War II, I believe. The the character Danny, he he's he's suffering PTSD because the whole crew had to bail out. the the The, the uh, bomber was shot down, and the the pilot. Fortunately, his parachute takes him to a side of the river where, you know, the underground spirits him off and he makes it out. But the others either die or they end up in prison and they suffer. And you bring us to the present day when this uh, pilot's coming back. He's a hero. He's got a brand new wife. She sees this opportunity as a money making thing. And he's trying to help out Danny who's in this home in this little small town but Danny's sort of struggling. I mean, all he sees is the S curve of the river still in his mind as he's parachuting out. Um, where did this idea come from you because you do a great job juxtaposing this and you end up feeling empathy for both these characters. You know, the the one who survived and 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 became famous as a hero and the one who's still struggling.
0: Right. The whole idea of what makes a hero is something that really interested me and and um I kind of explored it throughout all of the stories. Um, so I, I was not an English major in college. I was a history major and, um, part of what I studied most was the, the period between the two world wars and world war II itself. Um, I'm just fascinated by that. And I've read as many accounts of that from, um, you know, pilots and soldiers as I, as I can, um, just because it really interests me. Um, but yeah, this whole idea of what makes a hero and um, if you if you are a hero, let's say you're a hero in a war and then you come home and your life is less heroic, um, does that diminish the heroism that you showed when you were a young man or a young woman? Um, I remember when um, Timothy McVeigh was... Um, about to be put to death and people were debating whether he ought to be allowed to be buried in Arlington Cemetery, um, that got me doing a lot of thinking because, you know, he he was a decorated war hero um, and yet he did a horrible, horrible thing after that. So, you know, what are the rules about heroism and, um, you know, is just surviving like Danny does in the story, is that a form of heroism? Or do you have to really just have the sort of showy prowess that, that the other character Mackie has? And I don't have the answers, um, but I, I enjoyed exploring the questions.
1: Yeah, no, it was, it was a great story. I, I, I liked the way you took us back in time and then brought it forward. And then, you know, the, 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 end of the story was really, uh, really wonderful as well. Um, a couple of writing life questions before we wrap up here. Um, uh, you know, when you write these connected stories, Different than a novel, but still, you've got uh, some characters. They got to have an arc. You know, the stories have an arc. What's the writing process like there to create a a book like this?
0: Well, um, like I said, after about the third one, I started to kind of write with a view to making each story standalone, but also fit into a into the whole. Um, and then when I got done with all of them. Um, You know, some of them were published individually, but um, when I was ready to put them together as a collection, I did change certain things to um, emphasize that overall arc. I also eliminated certain uh, duplicative things because, you know, you don't need to be told 14 times in every story something that you're told in the first one. Um, So it was kind of an interesting process turning it into one body of work rather than the individual stories. Um it was a lot of fun
1: yeah and and you you've done well with these stories, and you've gotten you know some awards with them. I'm often curious uh, it's often hard to figure out sometimes when to end a short story <laughs> you know <Yeah. laughs> what, what's your rule of thumb on that
0: <laughs> um yeah, and I'm not sure I have the the magic answer to that sometimes I think I tend to to end them on a little bit of a like the this seventh note of it eight note scale and, and some people are bothered by that, but um, I don't know. I like to end them with an image or kind of circle back to the beginning of the story and have some sort of a little echo. Um, I don't know, but it's a very good question, Landis. Endings are, endings are hard, but you know, if you don't want to end the story, maybe you're telling yourself that you need to be writing it as a novel.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And point of view, I noticed you usually picked a point of view and you um, you stuck with it, um, but you did shift time periods. You know, when you would change scenes, sometimes you'd go back in time. Uh, when you're writing a short story, do you have any rules about how much of that you do in order to maintain the continuity of the story, you know, sort of the back and forth?
0: Not really. Um, I would say in short stories, you don't have as much uh space to do that as you would in a novel. Um, but I do think you can get away with a little bit paragraph by paragraph. Um, and especially since there were, you know, historical components in some of these stories where people are remembering World War II or um, childhood or whatever. Um, I think it was important to do and and hopefully managed to pull it off even in the limited space.
1: Mm, yeah, no, you did. It was it was really well done. Um this is a question I ask, and since it, it took you 10 years here and you got this thing, this option now and everything. So if you could tell your younger writing self something of value, uh, <laughs> it would be very helpful, which had you known it sooner, you know, it might have made a difference uh, in your writing career. What would it be?
0: You know, I think something I learned later than I should have is um, the importance of Community and process, as opposed to the goal of publication. I, I don't know if you're like this. I think a lot of lawyers are. We're very goal oriented. You know, we we know what we want. We're going for it. You know, everybody get out of the way. And that was me for a lot of my writing life before I published my first novel. Um, and after I had finished the novel, but not yet sold it, I did a very smart thing, which was enroll in a writing class with Tommy Hayes in Asheville. Um, And I stayed in that class for about three different semesters over time, working on these short stories and um, making friends. And I think that, that act of like taking my nose away from the grindstone and looking up and looking around me and seeing other writers and meeting other writers, what it taught me was that, you know, publication is great, but at the end of your life, whether you publish or not, if your writing life has given you friends and community and satisfaction, then honestly, that's a more valuable thing than publication. And yeah. people who haven't been published yet think that's not true and <laughs> want me to shut up. <laughs> but I'm I'm here to tell you it is um, so important. And that that class with Tommy was really um life changing both for my writing and for my uh you know personal life most of my friend groups um came out of my writing life so very important
1: yeah and i, I would i would echo that you know now that i'm in my recovering trial lawyer stage and you know, meeting all these writers <laughs> that come from all these different backgrounds and having interviewed i don't know 300 authors and their past and it's just very interesting to immerse yourself in a in a community of like-minded people who want to put words on paper. And so Absolutely. I think that's a, yeah, a great way to sort of wrap this, uh, this episode, particularly since we're going to go over now on Patreon and talk about, uh, you know, uh, community writing groups and what they can do for you. If you don't want to spend, you know, 30 or $40,000 a year on an MFA. So uh, we're <laughs> we're going to do that in just a second. The book we've been talking about is in Circle with uh, Heather Newton. Uh, you can find out information in our show notes, uh, at Podcast.com about her links to her website and information about uh, her books. So do that. And uh, Heather, hey, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte's podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio,